this is Jeff Morton, your host with uh, Returning to Eden, a program that uh, we put together, Dr. Dita Dye and I, to kind of reconnect us back to the ancient world so we could have a better understanding of what the biblical writers were talking about in all of the various time periods. That's what Returning to Eden is all about. It's about going back to the past in order to understand how they saw the world and how they wrote about the kingdom of God certainly the Messiah, and all of the different things coming out of ancient Israel. Dina Dye is not with us tonight. She um, She's on the beaches of Jamaica uh, enjoying herself and uh, with her family. She, uh, I think this was her mom and two sisters trip. They went to Ireland the last time, and uh, now I guess they're in Jamaica. So they went from rain and moisture to sun and beauty down in Jamaica. And if you go to Dina's website, or excuse me, her Facebook page anyway. She's posting a few pictures from here and there. The wonderful time that she's having in Jamaica. I don't know. Um, uh, my guest tonight is going to be Daniel McGurr, and I'll bring him on tonight here in just a moment. But I don't know if he's got a lot of snow and wind and hail, but we've got rain and yuck up here in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, speaking of Daniel McGurr, I've known Daniel now for several years. Uh We've met, we actually met him face-to-face -face here in Salem, Oregon a few years ago when he was teaching on honor and shame. I followed his stuff for a number of years. He was on my, I had him on my program when we were, when I was doing the Seattle uh, radio station on Salem Communications. Just a great dude. I mean, I, I just love this brother, his wife, very pretty. I think she's very pretty. We've got two wonderful sons, and he's been out here doing this. For a long time, so let me introduce you to those of you who don't know, Daniel McGurr, McGurr my friend. Remember, Daniel? <laughs> Welcome to Returning to Eden, but I still have a hard time getting your last name right. It's Daniel McGurr. That's right. After all these years, come on, man. <laughs> Welcome to Returning to Eden. It's a pleasure to have you here, my friend. I appreciate it. Really, really honored to be here with you, man, and get to hang out with you for a little bit. Yeah, now Daniel's on a Wi-Fi uh, signal, so he might cut out a little bit and hope you guys can, if you those of you understand technology, that's just the way it is. But we're going to be here tonight for an hour because I believe what Daniel wants to talk about and I want to hear and learn from him is very interesting. And, of course, we're always trying to go back to understand how the writers of the Bible were writing the material that we read today because, folks, believe it or not, how we have interpreted things over the last 1,800 years takes it so far out of context that we really do need to go back. And I believe our Lord, our Savior, is always trying to get us to go back so that we can understand the material that presents to us the kingdom and everything that's going on in covenant relationship. So, Daniel, you um, why don't you start out by just giving our audience, and I don't really want to interview you. It's kind of like we've done that before. You're my friend, right. you're my brother in the kingdom, and I want to hear what you have to say. Uh, but our audience doesn't know you. Some of them don't know you. So why don't you uh, tell people a little bit about yourself? We'll get that out of the way real quick. Okay. Well, I, uh, my name is Daniel. I'm married with a wonderful, beautiful wife, as Jeff had mentioned how pretty she is, and I'll be sure to tell her that. I appreciate that. Uh, we have two boys. One, uh, my older son, Dylan, is about to be 22 in August, and then Eli is our youngest, and he was, he's going to be 18 in November. Um, so my wife and I are basically starting life over again in our early 40s because our kids are older, done with school, and that kind of thing. So we're excited about that. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry, don't get too excited. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead, but continue, Daniel. <laughs> Only 42 to 43, bro. We, we, got, we got... No, 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 no. Mike, listen, let me tell you something about your kids getting older and you're starting all over again. When they knock on the door and say, hey, you guys got a place for me to stay? It doesn't, it doesn't start over. It gets costly. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me, I mean, just I'll mention they're still living here, so right. I mean, it's, not like, yeah. it's not like we're completely starting over. But, uh, I mean, you got two boys, your beautiful wife, Melanie. Yep. Uh, I've been married for 22 years, 20, going on 23 years in October. Um, been doing ministry for about, man, eight, ten years now. Um, 
I started out teaching with a guy named Rico Cortez. A lot of people yep. probably know him. Yep. Um, he's, he actually is the one that his father used to open the door for me to, to start teaching, doing videos, going around traveling and that kind of stuff. So I'm extremely grateful for that. So well, that's, I, let, let me ask you a question about all of that because obviously, you know, I don't think I ever asked you this before, and this probably be a great opportunity uh, for the next minute or so. You, um, how did this all happen for you? I mean, you go into church. What happened? <laughs> uh, this may take longer than two minutes. Okay. But we're originally from Youngstown, Ohio. Um, we live in, outside of Kansas City right now, so we moved out here in 2008. Um, but when we were back home, was, we were we were the good Christians. We were the ones that went to church. You know, we were involved in youth ministry. We did. I did some music ministry, stuff like that. I mean, we read scriptures all the time. But then we started noticing that there was just something missing, right? And we went to a we went to a United Methodist slash Pentecostal church. <laughs> okay. It does exist. Yeah, that's it a nice moron, but okay if you say so. <laughs> Man, trust me, it exists. And once all that kind of Pentecostal stuff started happening is really when I started to get concerned with things. And, but we went to our pastor with some things, just minor things that we were concerned with. And, you know, we started church hopping, going from one church to another, trying to figure out what we were missing. Um, long story short, never found it there. So we moved to Kansas City. And, uh, well, the first time we moved here in 2007, we were here for six months. Um, we were going to a couple of different churches here in the area still were missing something. Couldn't figure it out. So when we first moved here, as I was working at an RV center, actually repairing RVs, right? Mm -hmm. so, so after about five months of us being here, we got homesick, so we decided we were going to go back. We were going to go back to Ohio. It wasn't what we thought, but we couldn't figure out what we were missing as far as our spiritual life and that kind of stuff. But when I turned in my two-week notice to the RV center, is the week after that is they hired somebody to replace me. And the guy came in, I got to work with him for one week. So he was working in the bay next to me. And we, during that week as we would talk about the Bible, we talked about Christian authors and stuff that we both knew and pastors that were national pastors and stuff like that. But anyway, so I get to my last day and this guy they hired to replace me is he had a minivan similar to the one that we had at the time and he was trying to sell it. And he says, are you interested in buying it? I was like, well, I'm going to need two cars when I get back home. Uh, maybe I'll call you and I can meet you halfway when I get the money together. I'll come and get it. So he gives me his number, put it in my wallet. A couple days later, we have our stuff's already packed in a, in a trailer on its way back to Ohio. We get in our car to leave the end of October. And as soon as we got in the car, that's a 16-hour drive from Kansas City to Youngstown. Okay. Uh, yeah. As soon as we, so as soon as we got in the car, I just had this feeling in the pit of my stomach that it was like the biggest mistake ever. Didn't say nothing. <laughs> Didn't say a word. So, and the boys were young then. I mean, this was 10, 11 years ago. So we get closer and closer to Ohio, and it's just getting worse. I mean, I'm feeling sick to my stomach, dude. I'm, I'm like ready to pull the car over. Wow. Yeah. So still didn't say anything. And that night, we had already rented an apartment, right? So we had to get the keys. <laughs> rent an apartment, but we had to stay with my mother-in-law that night to get the keys. <laughs> well, trust me, it gets funnier. So we get back into Youngstown, and, and my stomach's just going crazy. Like this is this is wrong. We don't. We should not be here. Finally, pull up to her mom's apartment. I I, I looked at my wife and I was like, "We got to go back. This is." <laughs> Spent 16 hours, 16 hours on the road. You know, and and she agreed. And she I was getting ready to say, "That's the part I was waiting for." <laughs> so she agreed with me. So we get it. We get in, into her mom's apartment, right? 
And I, when we lived here the first time, was we were staying with Melanie's brother. And so as soon as we got in the house, I called him up. I'm like, hey, dude, we're coming back. Can we come back and stay until we get a place? He's like, nope. <laughs> and I'm like, what are you talking about? He's like, nope, you guys got to figure out what you're going to do, what you want to do. You guys figure it out and do it on your own. Yeah. I was like, okay, got to come up with plan B. So immediately I hang up with him and I call the guy back at the RV center, my boss. I said, hey, uh, <laughs> I made a mistake. Can I come back and have my job back? <laughs> nope. <laughs> he says, yep. When are you oh, coming yeah. back? Okay, good. He says, yeah, you can have your job back. When are you coming back? And I say, I'm going to need about five, six months to save up money to get out there. Because I was going back to my old steel job, welding, fitting, and I was going to have to work two jobs to save money. I was going to have to sell all kinds of stuff to get back, right? He's like, you get back here in May, you'll have a job waiting for you. Wow. I was like, okay, sweet. So we had a plan, right? I told you it was going to take longer than two minutes. Okay. But it's it's a good story. So well, I, I did you, ask. I'd like to hear this. You, Go ahead. You did ask. So immediately, I uh, we got into our apartment the next day. We unpacked and went back to working two jobs, saving money. So I decided that I found that dude's number that replaced me in my wallet. So I call him up, and I'm like, hey, man, I'm coming back. We're going to be working side by side together again. Like, Can you help me find a place to live? I said, I don't have enough money to drive back and forth out there to go find a place to rent. So stuff like that. He's like, sure, man, I'll help you out. So come to find out, he finds us a place directly across the street from him and his family. I, I mean, it was a townhouse. The, I, the townhouses, bro, they were identical. His driveway was directly across the street from mine, right? So we're, we're going to be living across the street from each other. We're working side by side together, and we only live three miles away from the RV side. So we're on our bikes together to work. So we get back 2008, May, go back to work at the RV center. Me and this guy are working side by side. Two months in, he starts talking to me about eating kosher, oh, keeping wow. Christmas and Easter. And here's the thing is that for two months, this guy didn't have to work any Saturdays, and I couldn't figure it out because every RV tech that was there, you had to rotate and you had to work a Saturday. It was like every six or seven weeks, right? I couldn't figure that out until like two months later he starts hammering me about eating hot dogs and keeping Christmas and all kinds of stuff like that. Well, like I told you, I was the good Christian, man. Do you remember the Palm Pilots when they were big back in the day? Sure. Well, I, used, I used to carry one of those with me all the time. I had like nine versions of the Bible on there. I had Strong's Concordance, all sorts of Christian <laughs> commentaries on there. You, you know, just whipped it out like a gun, huh? <laughs> yeah. yeah, so I sit, I sit down there on my lunch break, and then he started talking to me about eating kosher and giving me verses, and I'm starting looking them up, right? And it took me about four weeks to figure out, oh, crap, <laughs> this guy's right. Yeah. So, I mean, everything that he was talking about was was 100% accurate. As far right. as it's all right there. Yeah. It was all right there, right? So it was like this massive plan of the creator to have us go through this struggle of moving back to our when we should have been there. No, no, Especially no, 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 no. It wasn't a massive plan of the creator. It was you you decided you were going to go back to Ohio, and he's like, oh, I don't think so. <laughs> yeah, but see, but see, if I didn't do that, this dude that they replaced me wouldn't have been there. You, you know what I mean? Well, yeah, I, I guess I can go there. All right. So anyway, you come into a to an understanding of the Torah. You read the Torah to the gospel. That's the way I like to say it. Keep it simple. And every and, and your wife. I mean, how did that how did that all? Because you had to go home and do that one next. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that took about two weeks after that. Okay, good. Um, I started talking to her about this kind of stuff, and uh, she was apprehensive at first, but. I mean, it didn't take her long either. I mean, two weeks is not not apprehension. That's yeah. I mean, she was getting it. So Daniel, I mean, now that we've we've kind of covered the basis of of how you got in all of this, when the lights came on, if you will, and I'm going to use that term because, like you, I was in the church and I was steadfast. 
But when the light came on and began to reveal this other stuff that's going on, which is really the backstory, that is the story. What? How did that? What happened to you? I mean, what happened oh, to man. you, the person? Oh, it's it's. I mean, I went. To, I've gone through multiple stages since 2008. I mean, I went through like most people do, and if people are listening, if you're really honest with yourself, I mean, we were talking about this before, Jeff. Just read my blog, folks. Read the first few, the first few years of my blog. You'll think I wanted to shoot Christians. You, you go through this. Yeah, but see, mine wasn't. Mine was really not a, a, against Christians. Mine was against Torah people. That oh. the, the other. <laughs> <laughs> Torah terrorists. So I was I was a Torah terrorist against the Torah keepers. Ah, okay. But but it was not not really. I don't know how to explain it. it. What happened to me is I went through the whole gamut of things like everybody does with calendar issues and name issues and <laughs> just now you look back at it. I know it's ridiculous. Like, it's so it's ridiculous. ridiculous. Yeah. It is. It is. It's so, ridiculous. But what I did was is I created a blog under a different <laughs> ministry name. <laughs> That's what we do, right? Even roots people if we love the blog. <laughs> oh, you're telling my story, you're killing me, bro. <laughs> so, so listen. <laughs> so I created this this blog site of thinking that if we could figure out all of the right answers to all those hot topics like was Paul a heretic? What's what's the <laughs> what was you killing me, bro? <laughs> bro, we're on, we got an hour show. You got to get it. Right. <laughs> I just remember all this stuff. You bring flashbacks here. Or oh, go ahead. So, and I figured if we could figure out the right calendar out of the twenty-six that are out there. If we could figure out the 28 pronunciations of the name. I got I got thrown off websites because I didn't have it right. <laughs> Me too. Go ahead. Me too. But I thought, but I thought if we could figure out all of the answers to these questions, that was going to bring unity to the body of story belief. <laughs> oh, you know how long it took me to figure out that was a bad idea? Probably a year or two. <laughs> no. It took me about ninety days. All right, so bro, I had people I, I have people from Israel messaging me saying that I have no authority whatsoever to be talking about any of these topics. <laughs> then I was like, too, okay. They were a little yes. intimidated to tell me that, but they did. Certainly the rabbis did. Oh yeah. Go so ahead. after that I I decided to take a break. I was like, Okay, Father, this is not the area you want me to go in. So I took a break for a couple of years, and I started watching Cortez a lot and reaching out to him, you know, just, yeah, you know, thanking him for the stuff that he did. We started watching his tour portions when he first started him and stuff like that, you know. And I, I started reading a little bit of Ancient Covenant stuff, like very little. He calls me up at my job one day. Did I ever tell you this story? Um, no, I don't know. We've talked about a lot of things, but in the yeah. time that we have, go ahead. <laughs> um, he calls me over my job one day, and he's like, bro, that article you sent me has got me messed up. And I'm like, whoa, whoa. Yeah, and I, dude, and I would email him stuff. But, I mean, some of the stuff that I sent him, I don't even I don't even remember reading it. You know? He's like, that article you sent me on Ancient Covenants by Lopez. And I'm like, um... I don't know if I sent it. He's like, Daniel, it came from your email address. I was like, okay, but don't call me up here at my job yelling at me about something. <laughs> you know, I didn't know if he was ticked off or what. But come to find out as he wasn't, as he was really excited about it. But it, it literally changed the way we started looking at things because he, he told me to go back and read it. And that night I read it. And it's like, it's probably a 20-page, two-part article, you know, two PDFs. 20, 30 pages maybe, and it was all on suzerain vassal treaties. Bingo. You know, let's, i got to interrupt you real quick and just add to this. That was the thing that took me out of the Torah terrorists, kill the Christian 
Christian message, that whole thing. In fact, I yep. ordered it. I ordered it uh, from Ryan. When I watched that whole thing, and I went, <clears throat> that was like explaining a download that I got. That Dina Dye comes along and she puts a caboose on it, and now I understand it's completely different. It's, so I, I know exactly how that affected you when you begin to realize the Susan Vassal uh, covenant treaty laws, the legality of the whole system, and all that stuff. It, it's a it's a it's a game changer. But go ahead. Oh, it is absolutely, and it, I mean, once you, I read those two articles, man, and I talked to Rico a couple days later, and he's like, you know what, I'm, you and Ryan got to come and teach on our website with us, yeah, with I me, and we we just started going through Torah portions with actual context to how it was understood to the people in the time in which it was written, instead of. Superimposing. Well, we superimpose our understanding on it, and it's. I, I read Meredith uh, uh, Meredith Klein yeah. changed everything, and then of course John Walton come rolling into my life through Rico, and that that was a game changer. But anyway, uh, okay, so yeah, the age, yeah, go ahead. I was gonna say I, I did a whole uh, series on based off of Walton's work. I mean, understanding that the macro temple in the heavenly realm, man, it's... I have it here on the shelf. I've got it. I've got yeah. that series. I ordered it from you. And you charged me. Yes, you did. Ryan <laughs> charged you. Ryan charged Well, Daniel, okay, so so we got a little bit of feel for your background. And uh, I'm kind of eager. Um, I, I got to mention, too, because I remember when Rico transformed. And when he saw this ancient covenant stuff, a lot of the stuff that we used to listen to on YouTube, I mean, we'd go through every one of his teachings and whatnot. He said last yep. uh, last January when I was down in Florida, he said, I wish I could pull some of that stuff off because I, I was wrong about so many things because I didn't have the, the pieces to fit. And now, you know, now he's moved on to that. But I moved on with all of this information. But that Suzer, Vassal, Treaty information about the legality of the system, the honor and shame thing you did, which is posted on your website. By the way, folks, Daniel's website is danielmcgur.com. Uh, write that down. Check out his stuff. I was there today uh, looking at all of his material. But <clears throat> all of those things begin to take the argument away from uh, what we got wrong to basically what we don't know. And so it was important for me to go and start learning how to put these things in proper context. Because I had a download. I had a different experience. I just got all this stuff shoved into my head. If you get something like, for example, how to take a shower, and then you get a brand new thing that completely eviscerates how to take a shower, and you have no idea how to replace that, it's like learning how to walk when you don't have any example. That's what happened to me. So I started seeking out all of these people that were talking about this, and it started gelling. The ancient suzerain yeah. vassal treaty stuff, which we talked about on the last the last time I interviewed you, was well, gigantic. Yeah, I mean, another huge turning point for me was when we started going through the book of Leviticus for the first time. Mm -hmm. And it was, I think it was the second year we started doing Torah portions over on Wisdom and Torah site, and we got to the book of Leviticus, man, and I felt like I was not supposed to teach anything until I grasped basic sacrificial laws and what, you know, blood manipulation, that kind of stuff. So I started reading Milgram's commentary. Got it right here myself. And man, it took me two weeks to go through his introduction of sacrifices. And just like you said, you had this download moment, and there's nothing you could do to fix it. And there's nothing you could do to change it. But once you have that, is it completely transforms everything you thought you knew about Yeshua, about sacrifices, why the temple is so important. You know, I mean, it really does. And I, and I really, for the sake of our audience, because I do want to get into the topic tonight, for the sake of our audience. What we're talking about is being restored to the things that God has purposed and, and coming out of the theology, and you've heard me and Dina talk about this ad nauseum, coming out of the theological doctrines that have virtually nothing to do, and I won't say all, trust me, I'm not, I don't mean to, to broad brush that, 
But most of what <clears throat> I experienced, most of everything that I came to understand as a Christian has very little to do, very little to do with the overall context of what's actually happening. And, and uh, Daniel, that's really what I've, we've been talking about for half an hour, just kind of catching up, really. Um, yeah. But that's really what we're talking about. But, but tonight, I mean, <clears throat> the whole concept of evil eye, <clears throat> now that we've had these epiphanies and they continue, you know, it's like it's like getting a shot of heroin, whatever yeah. that must feel like, every so often because you get these epiphanies, this adrenaline rush goes, and you begin to connect the dots. Things get, They start to gel to where you start seeing the fluidity of the kingdom of our Elohim everywhere. And you're going to talk about evil eye tonight. Tell me a little <laughs> bit of... Go, go there. We have to get there because I'm running out of time. We've got a half hour. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so the, the evil eye topic is, is my latest epiphany. And uh, give me the background yeah. on, on this. What happened? Well, I, I don't know. <laughs> it just, <laughs> this, stuff, this stuff just happens to me, man. Is, uh, and I explain this several times to people. It's like when we go through all these topics and you think that, okay, Father, there, there can't be anything else. I mean, <laughs> yeah, literally. Okay, so let me give you an example. When you saw me back in Salem, probably four or five years ago, right? Yeah. I first we first started doing honor and shame, and I think when I did that teaching, is I had four, three, four tops categories within honor and shame society, right? I'm up to nine. Yeah. And, and it's not just, okay, these are little tiny elements of an honor and shame society. These are huge, huge concepts within themselves that take four hours to teach. So now even with this whole evil eye and envy topic, is I, this is, I'm going to be up to ten. You know, and it's all enveloped within an honor and shame society, which is why it's so important that we understand those type of concepts because New Testament writings, guys, I mean, it's... You cannot understand it. And we read over and over and over about just little things about the evil eye, where the eye is the lamp to the body. And we don't, I mean, I think we think that we know what it means, just like everything else. Like, when I started posting little snippets about the evil eye on Facebook, because that's kind of like my, my notebook for notes to go back to when I'm creating teachings and creating PowerPoints. So I'll, I'll figure out this little tiny nugget, right? I'll post it on Facebook, and just I'll see what kind of feedback I get. And most people think that the evil eye has to do basically just with stinginess or just with being mad um, with money. I mean, you know what I mean? They think that when Yeshua or the disciples or anybody else is mentioning the evil eye, that they're just talking about them being greedy and there's, there's really nothing else to it. Well, there's a whole lot of things to it, right? Now, I want to read this quote real quick to you from this book. Well, it's, the book's called Social Sciences in the New Testament Interpretation. It's by Dr. Richard Warbro. Excellent, excellent book. Uh, so he says that the Bible is not written for Western readers. We know that, right? I mean, Walton said that the Bible is not written to us. It was written for us, but it was not written to us. It was written to a specific people in a specific time who understood the culture, understood the language, the idiomatic expressions, you know, the social statuses of the time, the social cultural norms of the day. And we don't understand that stuff. So he says, few Westerners know anything about, much less believe in the evil eye. We are unlikely to know anyone who possesses it or anyone who has suffered from it. Yet it was nearly universal belief in the Mediterranean world of antiquity, excuse me, just as it is in the region of the present day. They all know possessors and victims personally, yet when this phenomenon is talked about in the Bible, as it often as it often we Westerners know neither how to interpret it or how to translate the terms for it. So, you know, they have, we have these scholars, that, very, very few scholars, right? But I found out that once I started digging into this topic, is, bro, I've got like four or five books in my home that I've already had, didn't purchase, that they were just commentaries on social norms of the day that talk about the evil eye. It was ridiculous on how many books I actually found sitting in my house already that mentioned the topic. And most people don't realize is that 
there are 67, I think it was 67 of 183 worldwide societies that believe in the evil eye. Right? So uh, you that's, know, Daniel, that's quite I, a bit. I got to admit, when I started looking at your material, and then I started doing my own cursory, very, very quick look, I was surprised to realize that the evil eye would have been as common to you and I 3,000 years ago, 2,000 years ago, as a computer is to our generation. And we have no understanding of that. And that's why you're here tonight. You're going to explain that to us. Right. So how all this started and how I'm basically structuring the teaching of this. And by the way, you guys are hearing this for the first time. I'm actually teaching this down at Shavuot, down at Lion and Lamb Shavuot event, the full, the full deal. But... Um, Basically, how it's set up is that we found a verse in the New Testament, right? Well, it's actually in there twice. It's in Matthew 27:18, and it's in Mark 15:10, where it talks about that Pilate perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priest had delivered Yeshua to death, right? So that brings up a question: Is why would the chief priest, out of envy, lead Yeshua to be crucified? Well, keeping in line with the understanding of honor and shame culture, it was because Yeshua's fame and honor have grown greater than the chief priests, and that brings shame upon them, right? But the reality is, is that if we're going to understand the concept of the evil eyes, we have to understand envy and limited good in the ancient world, the first century world. They're all linked together. So we have envy, limited good, belief, and the evil eye practice are all linked together in one tightrope. We have to understand how important all three of those were to the people, right? And, Jeff, I mentioned to you that uh, we were off air that 98% of the people living in first century Israel did not consider themselves part of the kingdom. Why? It's because they were born into a social status. They were born into a peasant family, which is not a negative term. It's just a normal run of the, you know, normal person like you or I, but they're living in an agrarian culture society to where they're born into a certain status, right? So 98% of the people didn't think they were part of the kingdom. Why? Because there was two, the remaining 2% elite of Israel's time were the ones that had all of the honor. They had all of the wealth. They had all of the land. They had everything that was able to hold. They were able to hold all that stuff over the 98% of the people. That was partly why was the definition of limited good in the first century world is that all things were given in finite quantities. So, kind of like the, the Democrats land. over the ghettos. No, I'm just kidding. Go ahead. Dude, absolutely. I, I, I know that that's absolutely true. But it transfers even into our day. Saying. Yes, I know it, it transfers. Is. I always say, I always say, Daniel, we're not a, we're not separated from the past. We're a product of the past, which is kind of why we do this program. But anyway, this whole limited good. Explain limited good before you go a little further. This is getting you so, back to that 98%, right? Yeah, so basically, I mean, all ancient countries, man, all ancient nations, they all had caste systems. I mean, this is essentially right. what it is. It's a caste system. You know, you have the religious elite, the political elite, the kings that were all sitting at the top, and then it trickles down into a, you know, a system where the majority of the people that are living in the land and living in the time are under the thumb of the elite ruling everybody. But limited goods, is, is like I said, is that they believed that everything was given out in finite quantities. So there was only so much land. There was only so much honor. There was only so much wealth, right? So majority of the people, they found it comfortable. To, to, they were born to their status. They were comfortable living in their status. It's not like the United States where, you know, we, we, we raise our kids dream. to aspire to be anything. Right. Yeah, to dream, the American dream, right? Right. American dream. It's, it's nothing like that. Right. And, you know, we raise our kids to be, hey, you guys can be anything you want. You can go to college, anything you set your mind to. Ancient world did not think like that. They, because well, but, 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 could, but, Daniel, that very statement is what made this country so, i got to throw this in here, what made this country so unique, folks, is because for the first time in history, things flipped. And, Daniel, this is kind of what we're talking about because no longer were you born to just be one of the, the the societal normals. You had an opportunity to excel. This is the first country on the face of the earth that offered that to the citizens. 
which right. flipped that whole switch. But go ahead. Well, and that's one thing I want to make mention of too is that when we when I mentioned Yeshua and the disciples and so on and so forth in the New Testament dealing with these concepts, it's not that they actually believed or or they were in agreement with the way the society set up the structure, right? Yeshua takes every single one of these areas and flips it upside down. He's doing it with the, the evil eye possessor. You know, he's doing it with limited goods. Like, so rich and poor in the, in the New Testament, right? This goes back to limited good. Rich and poor is not a monetary status like it is today. Right. As it was, it, that wasn't like that in the first century. Those that were considered poor were those that were that had lost their status that they were born into, right? So if you're born into a status and you come into debt and you've got to go into slavery, right, to pay off your debt, that was considered a poor person, right? Anybody that fell from an inherited status that they were born into, whether they were a widow, a stranger, an orphan, right, any of those people, those were the ones considered poor. Why? Because they lost their inherited status. Right. And they needed a benefactor or a patron in order to bring them back up to their status and so on and so forth. So patron client, that's a whole other topic. But, but well, I mean, the limited that's goods. basically the story of Ruth and Boaz. It's the same kind of thing for people who understand it. But I don't want to take you off of where you're going. Go ahead. Uh, so, But understanding that the, the limited good part is essentially a huge factor to understand why this is connected to the evil eye, right? I mean, so... Envy in collectivistic cultures clearly presupposes the perception of limited good. The perception of limited good is the socially shared conviction that the resources enabling a community to realize its range of needs are, are in finite supply and that any disruption of the social equilibrium can be detrimental to community survival. So what that means is, like I said, if they acquired something else, that they believed was in finite quantities, they believed that they were taking it from somebody else and that disrupted the society and that all sorts of bad things could happen to them. Okay? So limited good is it, it, once they do that and they, they see somebody of an equal status moves a little bit above them, if you have two people that are in equal playing fields and somebody rises a little bit above them and gains some more honor, they gain some more wealth or some more land, that's when envy sets in because they're watching somebody that was supposed to be in the same status as them is moving up and leaving them behind. You follow? Yeah, I'm following you fine. I hope I think our audience is too, so it's, it's pretty yeah, simple, good. but go ahead. I mean, so it's extremely important to understand this. So I want to jump over to give you some definitions of envy again. Now, Aristotle... I know he's a pagan philosopher, but the reality is, is that there's him and a few others that have written a lot of material on envy and understanding on how to deal with it, right? And some of the things that he says is he defines it as a kind of distress at apparent success on the part of one's peers. Social equals are those most like themselves in terms of birth, relationship, age, disposition, reputation, Possessions are envious by what they share in common. People are especially envious, envious of their equals or of those once beneath them, like I just talked about, when they feel themselves left behind and fret at the other's upward flight. Now, I want to stop right here because if you jump into what we deal with right now, I mean, bro, I've, I've seen teachers after teachers after teachers that go after each other like they're going to war. And I, now I see that it's linked to this direct topic where they get envious if somebody gets to do a little bit more, they get to teach a little bit more, or they, they've moved in a different... You understand what I'm getting at? Well, I, what I... What, yeah, I, I, I get it. See, what, what, what Dan was trying to say, folks, is everything has a root. The word envy isn't just something that popped out somebody's mouth one day and everybody thought it was, oh, that's a pretty good catchphrase. This is a societal behavior that was institutionalized over the centuries. And so now, like when you, if you want to bring that to the modern day, yeah, I see this crazy stuff all the time. But we're still talking about something that's developed culturally for centuries. It's not something that went away or something that's new. It was a behavior that distinguished one group of people from the other, I suppose, 
uh, neighbor against neighbor. I mean, this is really where that concept comes from. But go, I'm curious because I'm learning as you talk. Yeah. So back to the question of why did the high priest deliver Yeshua up out of envy, right? I mean, because they didn't see Yeshua as an equal. I mean, they saw him as a blasphemer. They saw him as all sorts of other things, but they didn't see him as an equal. So why would they, why would they be envious of him? Well, it's because he was a challenger to their social status, right? right? Because his fame and his honor had grown so big and so vast that they sought to destroy him over his fame and honor as the son of the living God. I mean, he was claiming to be the son of God. I mean, so, I mean, they were so envious of him that this is why they delivered him up. It's, it's crazy how these, these verses make so much more sense. And, so and envious, we, we have to keep in mind that we're talking about a 2% not an entire Jewish or Hebrew community. Right. That is so right. important too, because in the in when we read the Bible, it says the Jews, the Jews, the Jews. But we're talking about the two percent, the elite class, not the people that followed him. So you know, it's just the way that they did the replacement theology thing in the in the translation. Jews bad, Christians good. That has nothing to do with what's happening, and I, I have to throw that in there. Go ahead. Absolutely. So envious people revered revealed their internal feelings in a number of ways. Check this out. Among these, scholars have noted ostracism, gossip, slander, feuding, litigation, and here it is, homicide. Yet all would agree that the prevalence of envy in the Mediterranean society was rather strongly understood by belief in the evil eye, otherwise known as EEBP, evil eye belief practice. So we can see that the murder part is exactly linked to envy and why the chief priest would lead Yeshua up for that. So what is evil I believe practice? Now this is where this starts to get extremely interesting because in the, the part that I, I want to hopefully focus on in the last few minutes that we have is giving you a brief description of what it is and then showing you certain ways that they would ward off the evil eye because this is all over the New Testament especially the Gospels. So basic to this belief is the conviction that certain individuals Animals, demons, or gods have the power of casting an evil spell or causing some malignant effect on every object, animate or inanimate, upon which their eye or glance may fall. Now, how many of you remember your mom giving you this glance? She's giving you the eye. She's giving you that look, you know, that stare, or somebody that you did something to you and they give you that look. I mean, everybody's dealt with this, right? But nobody puts Nobody puts it together like, oh, that person is casting a spell on me or they're casting evil on me or stuff like that. Because we don't think like that. We think that's ridiculous, right? But if we do realize is that the eye is the what? It's the lamp to the body. That's what yeah. it says in Scripture, right? Yeah. So if your eye is good, then your body is good. If your eye is bad, your heart is bad. So upon their eye, uh, through the power of their eyes, which may operate involuntary as well as intentionally, such evil eye possessors were thought capable of injuring or destroying the life and health of others, their means of sustenance and livelihood, their honor and personal fortune. So, I mean, this is how all of the first century world believed. It isn't just Israel. Like I said, there was eight, 67 societies that have modern belief or had beliefs, including modern day societies, that believed in this, this type of thing, right? I mean, there's, we have documents dating back to the Sumerians that talk about the evil eye. So the eye is considered to be the window to and of the heart, the physical channel of one's innermost attitudes, desires, and intentions. And so an evil eye was linked with the negative moral attitudes of envy and greed. So here's why envy is attached to the evil eye. Stinginess and covetedness and was considered to be directed against objects of the possessor's displeasure or envy. So here you have this person, right, that watches their so-called peers, moves up in the ranks a little bit. Those are the people that are considered to be envious. Those are the people that are, they believe would cast an evil eye upon somebody. It's also somebody that also lost the status or they were, and this is going to be the kicker that I'm, I'm going to share with you in a minute, is that those people that were considered to be blind or strangers or 
these other type of areas or the lame, the sick, these people were thought of to be possessors of the evil eye. Why would why would somebody Well are you saying let me just clarify this because I think I understand what you're saying. They were the ones that were the possessors of somebody gave in other words, were they victims or were they the ones that could do the evil eye? They were the ones that could do the evil eye. Okay. All right. So That's what very, I thought you were saying. Yeah, so the very okay, let's keep in mind too, the first century, right? What is one one of the the largest issues Yeshua had with the elite. They were not taking care of the widow. They were not taking care of the orphan. Right. They weren't taking care of the stranger. They were not doing acts of justice and righteousness, right? Right. But if the, if the ancient world looked at these people who we are supposed to be performing acts of justice and righteousness for and taking care of, if the, the ancient world viewed them as possessors of an evil eye, meaning that if they looked upon you, they would ruin your entire life. Or could, Why would they yeah. help them? Why would they help anybody if they believed that they were evil? Right? It's crazy. That's diabolical. It's diabolical. <laughs> oh, man, it's, bro, it, it's, it changes so many verses in Scripture. And we're not even going to have time to talk about Paul, but Paul was actually accused of being a possessor of the evil eye. Have you ever heard that? Yeah, I, I no. <laughs> Me neither. <laughs> All right, so I want to jump to the to the slide of uh, talk about how they would ward off people with the evil eye. So, as I mentioned, all strangers, outsiders, social deviants, family enemies, and the physically deformed, disabled, or blind were judged to be prime candidates of fascinators. And I say fascinators because fascinate the, the Latin term for that actually applies to the evil eye. The whole word was created to talk about the evil eye. So when you say that that's fascinating, bro, it's, what? Mm. Who comes up with this stuff? It's just amazing how much of it we've lost. Yeah. So strangers and outsiders were presumed to be envious of the good things the locals and insiders enjoyed. The social deviants, the criminals, the traitors were envious of those not caught and labeled as deviants, while the crippled and the blind were envious of those enjoying good health. So that's why they think that the blind and the lame and the sick, they were envious because, you know, everybody else had good health. These people had their eyes, you know. The, these people were healthy. So they, they automatically put a label on them, and this is the main reason why people never went around helping them, right? Wow. So. My God, this that is goes, where it gets that issues. goes against everything the Torah represents, and yet it, that that's 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 evil. It's like the deception. We're really talking about the deception that they were living under. I mean, because yep. we know what kind of deception we're living under, and we don't know it. But go ahead. I yeah. we've got, I mean, this is just this, this is actually fascinating. Uh, I should probably shouldn't use that word, huh? <laughs> this this is interesting. <laughs> Go ahead, Daniel. Don't this be really interesting. Don't be using that word no more. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so when they okay, so now that we've identified a couple of groups of evil eye possessors, so there's more to it than that because there's actually ways that people believe that they warded off people that were possessors of the evil eye, right? And we could talk about all kinds of them, but we don't have the time. But I, some I saw of them, several today, and I was quite surprised by a couple of the objects. But that's that's not for tonight. <laughs> that's not for tonight. Uh, so some of them are amulets of the ancient world, uh, gestures, devices, and expressions were used. Um, and I'm just going to throw this out there because it's funny, so don't email me, don't email Jeff. But one modern-day context to warding off somebody with the evil eye when they have road rage, believe it or not, is extending the middle finger. Flipping so, the person off was actually warding off a person that you thought was trying to cast a spell or an evil eye on you that was trying to destroy your yep. soul. And I Isn't found that, two resources that amazing? back that up. Go yeah. ahead. Is, I'd be curious to hear those. Don't tell me one of them was Richard Pryor. Go ahead. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> I do want to make mention, though, is that this is a huge evil, I believe, practice and protection is even involved in Judaism. 
And most people probably don't realize that. And I have um, lots of resources from Midrash and Talmud and, and all sorts of things that we could talk about at a later date. But they even have their own amulet. If you guys have never seen it, it's the shape of a hand. And it's got a bead in there, and it's actually a device that they believe that wards off evil and possessors of the evil eye, hmm. which kind of shocked me. You know, but Why? Like I, said, I mean, they they fought tooth and nail to be like the nation, so I guess, well, you know, I mean, it, it, you know, I mean, it's the way it was. But anyway, that's that's not so shocking to me. Yeah. Go ahead. So one of the other ways that the ancient people would ward off if they saw somebody that possessed the evil eyes, they would spit at them or they would spit a number of times, whether it be two or three times, and they believed that if they did that, that that warded off any casting of a spell or any evil that the possessor would throw at them. So they would use their spit as a means of basically, <laughs> that's oh, crazy, oh, man. Holy water. <laughs> yeah, it's funny, when I, I first started, I first started looking at this topic, and I told Melanie that. She's like, you got to call this teaching the holy loogie. <laughs> I made a comment on your Facebook post on this. I said, oh, my God, we got to start looging everybody here. But but yeah. anyway, so that was – so this is – I have a feeling you're going to tie this all into Messiah. Oh, yeah. Okay. I'm going right all there right. right now. Okay. We've got eight minutes. Go ahead. I, so, I, I felt it coming. Yep, so the spitting is a huge part, and I did not realize how much spit is actually involved in the New Testament, specifically the Gospels. And I know it may seem like a mundane thing if you're like, well, why do I need to know this? Well, because, like I mentioned earlier, is that Yeshua is taking all of these concepts, limited good, honor and shame, challenge and post, patron-client relationship, and he's flipping them upside down on their head to show them that this is not how it's supposed to be but I'm still going to talk to you in this language because this is the culture that you understand, right? So here we go. We have spitting was a huge factor in ancient Israel warding off people of the possessor of the eye, right? And remember I told you that the blind were considered to be one of those people or groups of people that were possessors of the evil eye. Mm -hmm. So here comes Yeshua along in Mark 8:22 through 26, finds a blind man that needs healed, right? And it says, and he came to Bethsaida, and they brought a blind man to him and begged him to touch him. And taking the blind man by the hand, he led him out of the village. And having spit on his eyes, laying hands on him, he asked, do you see it all? And he looked up and said, I see I've men like trees, trees walking. Then I placed his hands on his eyes again and made him look up, and he was restored and saw all clearly. And he sent him away to his home, saying, do not go into the village. So Yeshua, instead of using the very mechanism of spitting to ward off this so-called evil eye holder, he once again defies the cultural norm and uses it to heal the guy. So Yeshua spits in the guy's face. He spits in his eyes and heals him, right? The very opposite of what everybody else understood I mean, <laughs> and this it is, happens. In, it's actually recorded in the Talmud that by doing that, he was turning up the apple cart. It's actually written. I've read it. Somebody pointed it out to me where he actually is doing that to defy the cultural norm that that he, he literally, literally challenging the cultural norm that says what he's doing is against everything they understood. And those little things have great meaning, which is what you're trying to share with my audience tonight. They're Bro, huge. I mean, think about this. Think about the other incident, right? I think it's, I think it's in John chapter 9, where he heals the, another blind guy, the one that goes to the, the chief rabbis, right? right? And they're questioning him about being blind and how he got healed. It's because they believed that he was an evil eye possessor, and, and they can't figure it out. They thought that they were so right in, in labeling this guy as a possessor of evil, and there's no way on God's green earth that he should be healed, let alone by the spit of the guy who's claiming to be the Messiah. Mm. <laughs> that makes so much more sense. That's crazy. Um, see, Daniel, I think what, I mean, I, see, I, I wanted to do an hour because I knew we were going to go here. But also, I wanted my audience to know a little bit about you, your personal life, and who you are. Um, 
this this topic is gigantic. I mean, we you're gonna have to come back and just continue this because this is a giant topic. And when we when we look at the Bible from the lens of Western theology, none of this matters. And yet it is. It matters huge because no, we haven't even we yeah. have not even talked about how Yeshua got spit upon twice. Yeah, well, I mean, they spit on him. Even Psalm 22 talks about it. But but he well, actually was spit on by a couple people. Yeah, because they thought that he was an evil eye possessor. Hmm. <laughs> oh, man, it's crazy. Absolutely crazy. How everything, we don't know. Daniel, you, you, you said earlier that you were... Um, sharing this for the first time with this audience. Where where can people go? I mean, do you have all of your material? Is this something you've got got presented? People can listen to it, download it, buy it? Are you there uh, with actually, this yet? Well, not this topic. I mean, I've got to record this yet. Um, it's going to be recorded at Shavuot, so I could point people to that. And if, if people are looking to go someplace for Shavuot, uh, it's going to be down in Chandler, Oklahoma. Uh, I, actually, I might try to... I've never been down to Lonnie's place. I've never gone, and I I might I might try to do that this year for Chavo. Yeah, Monty's been a, a, a another huge blessing to me and my family. He's opened a lot of doors for me, and um, I'm really blessed and privileged to be able to work with people that I work with, man. Because I, I don't I don't deserve to work with the class of people that it still blows my mind. Well, you know, but, uh, my, yeah, go ahead. We'll finish out the show, but I'm I'm actually kind of speechless because I'm learning some. Again, like I said, you have these aha moments, the moments you get out of the pews and start really challenging the information. Then it's yeah. just an aha moment. I, I tell people you, you're going to lose your breath at least once a month for the rest of your life, and that literally is what happens, and that's happening tonight. I really don't even know what to say because this little tiny thing that we skim across in the scriptures has gigantic meaning and we don't have the context, which is what yeah. you're trying to help us figure out tonight. I appreciate that. But oh, he's, man, Yeshua even mentions this stuff in, in the parables, man. I mean, it's once we start going through the New Testament now and those people that have heard this and hear the topic of the evil eye, you will be blown away on how much is actually in the New Testament. I mean, you, like I said, we haven't even touched on Galatians. I mean, Paul is, Paul is using this language in the Galatians, and I mean, it's it's uh, it changes everything. Well, that's what the show is all about. The context when we go back to the ancient world and start looking at the Bible through their lens, when we start bringing their cultural integrity and the way the world worked whether it was in the days of Moshe or Moses, whether it was in the days of Abraham, or whether it was first century, which is where you've been pretty much most of the night, we cannot superimpose our 21st century culture on those people. We have to understand what they were talking about in order to understand what the king was doing. Because the king is setting up his kingdom and challenging the authority of the world in every single thing that he did, and we really don't understand that. Daniel, how would you sum up our program tonight? You got what a couple minutes. Um, I'll let you close out the show. Well, first of all, I want to say thank you to you again, you and Dina. I don't know if she's listening or not, but I really appreciate the opportunity to come on and share with you guys. Um, hopefully, we can do this a lot more in the future. Uh, kind of made some changes in my life to be able to to do that, and uh, you know, and, and teach where I get the opportunity to do so. So, um, just want to encourage everybody that. You know, we don't have to be those toward terrorists. You know, we don't have to fight over topics that mean absolutely nothing. Uh, we'll, that we'll find out in the end that we're all wrong. You know, but when we study context of scripture and actually going back to figuring out how the ancient people lived and understood this book that we read every single week or hopefully every single day, um, that's when we grow. And, and that's what I, I always want to push people to be a different person than you were from one Shabbat to another in growth, not going two steps back. We come across something that we don't understand, put it on the shelf, and come back to it later. You know? Our guest tonight, folks, is Daniel McGurr. 
You can catch his stuff at DanielMcGrew.com. Daniel's a friend of mine. He's a friend of the program. I know he knows Dina. And uh, I appreciate you coming on, man, and spending a whole hour with us. We normally do a 30-minute show, but uh, you're going to come back, right? If I say, Daniel, we need you to come back, maybe Dina will be, be here and we can have a even more of a conversation because, I mean, she knows a lot of the stuff. You know, you know the yeah. problem when we read all these books, and I'll just say this as we say goodnight, everybody. We read all these books by all these scholars, but the material doesn't float down into the pews. It doesn't get to the 98%, and that's the problem. Yeah. So yeah. that's what you're here to do tonight. Daniel McGurr, my friend, it's that was fun. First half hour, I thought I was going to uh, – yeah, I can't say what I was going to say. <laughs> Thanks a lot for coming on, man. Come on back to Return to Eden. Absolutely. Appreciate you tell it. tell me when. All right, brother. You let me know. Your schedule is going to get busy, I think. All right? Yeah, that's okay. Thank you, Daniel. We're out of here, Thanks, folks. Sir. God bless you guys and shop. Uh, happy. Uh, how many of you are doing Feast of Unleavened Bread? God bless you. And uh, God bless you during the feast and the celebration of this particular time in our years, in our year. Okay, this is Jeff Morton signing off, returning to Eden. God bless you guys. Bye bye.